Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Joanna Xavier. Uh, she's a scientist, an engineer, and an author of dozens of scientific publications on the fundamental properties of life, the origin of life, network biology, systems biology, and computational biology. And I wanted to talk to her today about her work. So, Joanna, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and, you know, why are you interested in the origin of life and, uh, you know, these, like, fundamental questions? Yeah, well, I I recall since being a child uh, being very inquisitive about life. So all the existential questions, I had them in my mind from very early on. And yeah, I was very fascinated with what is life? What is this thing that we are experiencing? And so I went on to study bioengineering and that led me to have more and more questions and and to go deeper and deeper towards the first life forms. Um, It was also that studying bioengineering, I had many colleagues from other engineerings and they could all build their systems and put them apart and we could not really do that as bioengineers because the cell, we still do not understand even the simplest cells. We cannot take them apart and put them back together from scratch. So yeah, I was very fascinated with how such a complex system as even the simplest cell can come to be in the yeah. universe. Yeah. If I said to you, like, where is the life in a cell? How do you answer that question? Like if you systematically took pieces out of it until it was quote unquote dead, like, first of all, I don't know, is there a criteria for alive or dead? and Again, where is the life in any living thing that you've observed, even the smallest things? Yeah, this is an extremely hot topic. And, you know, it generates very heated debates, like the definition of what it's to be alive. We scientists do not agree. And there are certain points that we agree, uh, meaning that a cell 
maintains homeostasis through metabolism, through the set of chemical reactions that sustain itself. But even reproduction, I mean, some cells reproduce, others don't uh, and continue to be alive. But there is this constant of exchange with the environment and eating and growing or producing something that gets excreted. So it is a dynamic system, a cell. And as long as it continues to be dynamic with eating and excreting, it's alive. When that stops, usually it means that, but not always. Like you have spores that are kind yeah, of dormant just, life forms. Yeah. Right. I was just about to ask you that. If I have a, a you know a pine tree, you know, you mm-hmm. look at the pine tree, you're like, all right, it's definitely alive. But what about the pine cone? You know, if it sits there for a year and then all of a sudden, let's say you had water in the right temperature and other conditions, and now all of a sudden the you know, it, the seed opens and it starts to grow again. What was it in the intermediate part? Was it still alive? And it's just weird. You know, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. There is. Um, so Sarah Walker has a good, I think a good article about this uh, where she says there is a difference between life and alive. So definitely a pine cone is life. It, to be alive, it would have to be exchanging things with the environment and growing and doing something, maybe reproducing. So, but a seed is life. As soon as it starts to grow towards being a plant, it becomes alive. I think that's a good distinction to have. Well, what about if I'm, uh, you know, I'm alive so far as I know. And, but if I go under anesthesia, I'm still alive, but. Yeah, but you're still really breathing. You're still breathing, hopefully. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so you're yeah, exchanging not, oxygen and. Yeah, you're exchanging gases with the environment and your cells are doing things. They are actively engaged uh, in their processes. So that's being alive. So, Well, what about emergent properties of, let's say, a biofilm or, you know, myself, I'm a holobiont. I have, you know, billions of bacteria and viruses and fungi and human cells and, and all of them constitute me. But yet, what is me? I'm an assemblage of all these cells. These questions, I guess, get very difficult when you think about them. They do. They do. And that's why when we study the origin of life, we tend to have these philosophical discussions and we we hopefully separate them. But they, they tell philosophy and it's very interesting. But the science usually is concerned with specific processes and, and specific molecules. But these definitions, these deep definitions belong more into philosophy than, than into science. Oh, really? Do you, do you you separate the two? Do you think that uh, science has no place for these these thoughts? Or, I mean, what's your thinking on it? You've, you must have been thinking about this for years and years and years. So, I mean, what are some of the, I guess, the interesting or advanced things that you've come up with, some of your own theories? Yeah, well, I, I prefer to focus on cells. So when people tell me, you study the origin of life, I say, I study the origin of cells, <laughs> just because of this uh, philosophical conundrum of what life is. So I, I tend to be fascinated with the cell as a, a system that can be studied with the scientific method and within even engineering uh, procedures. So, of course, I do engage in the philosophical discussions as well, but I, I am not sure if we'll be soon agreeing on a definition of life within the scientific realm, you know. So what's the minimum definite, what was the minimum requirements for a cell to be considered a cell in your mind? You know, like for instance, uh, if I have cells that release extracellular vesicles, you know, they're membrane bound things that carry genetic material, but they're not probably really alive. They're not really cells. But, you know, so again, what's your minimum definition of what constitutes a cell? Yeah, a cell is um, 
has, as you said, a membrane around it. Sometimes it also has a cell wall after the membrane, but it always has a membrane, an active membrane full of proteins that exchange substances with the environment and also generate energy. And within that membrane, there is a very dynamic cytoplasm full of proteins, metabolites, small molecules, and of course, the genetic code in the form of a long chain of DNA can be circular or linear, and also RNA uh, that uh, is is the the transcripts generated from, from DNA to then be translated into proteins. I guess that's the simplest way you, you could say what a cell is. Of course, that's very, very superficial, but all cells have that, you know, all cells have this set of components. What do you think of the uh, viral cell concept by Patrick Fortier? You know, where I guess whereby when a virus enters a cell, it forms this thing called a viral cell, you know, according to him. And, you know, is that uh, a true cell in your mind or is that just comes some kind of amalgam of two different things that, you know, one living, one not, or both living? Like, what are your thoughts there? It's interesting. I mean, viruses are very interesting. They are not cells, but they do use and need cells to exist and propagate. And uh, I would not know if it makes sense to to create a new concept for when a virus infects a cell. It's just a process of the interaction with the virus and the cell. Maybe it's useful to create a new concept, but I don't see that use for my work. But I don't work with viruses either, so... Yeah, what's your research about? And we'll focus on that for the rest. So I'm interested in the origin of the first protocells, but I've gone deeper into the origin of the first self-replicating entities, which is also a topic of debate. As you can uh, see by now, the, this is a very heated field. So some people defend that the first self-replicating entities were RNA molecules I'm more interested in simple chemical networks of small molecules that together form a unit that can self-propagate and self-replicate. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I came to, to this idea mostly because I did my PhD in genome scale metabolic modeling. So I was looking at all the chemical reactions in the cell in a computer model. And there is a lot of um, chemical activity in the cell. And it makes sense to me to think about the chemistry coming before the biology. And, and these chemical networks I can imagine them before cells, and I guess a lot of people can as well. So I'm interested in this possibility that there were small networks that grew and generated more complexity and eventually led to the building blocks of a cell that then aggregated to form a protocell and then a cell. 
Yeah, how do you think life began? What, what, you kind of went through it quickly, but what's your thoughts on how it started? And where did it start from? And then how did cells first arise? Well, it's important for us to know, and I think this is a big misconception in the public, that we know very little, right? So we often hear, especially scientists from other fields saying, oh, scientists got this figured out. We know how life started. It was in a warm little pond and things got together. No, this is a myth. We really know very little. We have theories. And one of the theories I'm particularly fond of is uh, the origin on hydrothermal vents that was put forward some years ago. Many people have been defending it, including uh, Mike Russell, Bill Martin. And so hydrothermal vents are very interesting because they are very dynamic and they, they are in the bottom of the ocean and they are protected from UV light and they create a dynamic environment of exchange, pH gradients, temperature gradients, and a lot of organic synthesis. So I'm interested in hydrothermal vents in particular. How life arose, that's really an open question. We have a lot of people working on it, a lot of theories. And I guess from the confrontation of those theories, we'll come to more and more conclusions in the near future. But the steps towards a full cell, it's still a very gray area. So what, what interesting dynamics have you seen in, in hydrothermal vents? Have you studied them much? And what kind of really interesting things come from them? Yeah, vents are really cool because they have, so the vents in particular that are, that people think about in, in terms of the origin of life, they have a pH gradient. So they are alkaline inside. So high pH inside and the outside is lower pH. And this is something that all cells have as well. So within the membrane, you have a different pH from the outside. And this differential pH is very important for the cell. This is a universal feature and one that makes hydrothermal vents very, very interesting. The other thing is that these vents are always expelling a fluid and the chemical transformations that uh, happen with, within the vent itself generate material that would be very useful for the cell or the protocell growth. So it's very different to have such a dynamic environment like this chimney that kind of even resembles a bioreactor. For me as a bioengineer, that's how I saw them. It's very different to think like that than to a pond because a pond, it's kind of a static environment. You know, there's not much happening in a soup pond. It's just things are there. And yeah, there's not much happening in terms of transformation and dynamics. So we want to have a dynamic environment. Another thing that vents have is micropores that help to accumulate and concentrate the components. So in the, in the ocean, you cannot imagine a protocell forming just, just in a vast ocean, right? It would dilute, it would escape. So the vents provide kind of like a hive with all these micropores for these things to concentrate. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. They also have tons of interesting minerals that are good catalysts for the reactions, like iron and, and other, other metals. So yeah, there's a lot interesting about hydrothermal vents, and in particular with relation to what I study, that is metabolism and the chemistry that a cell does. You know, so you study metabolism. What are, I've heard that there's methane-based metabolism, sulfur-based metabolism, maybe other kinds. What's been observed at the hydrothermal vents? What kind of metabolism that's different from yours or mine or surface creatures? 
Yeah, the, the one that we are really interested in is this process that has a real tough name that is called serpentinization. And uh, serpentinization makes it so that there is a, the production of, with the, the reaction of uh, water, there is a production of interesting carbon compounds. And so there, there is, it also allows for energy metabolism to start. And this is true, the, the reaction of uh, water with minerals. And so we are very interested in that, but there, there is more like the, the production of some carbon compounds, more complex carbon compounds like formate and acetate and pyruvate. And those are common in cells. They are essential in cells. And, and so these simpler car- carbon compounds, if we have them to start with, we can then proceed to more and more complex molecules. You know, have you personal? I, I guess it would be really difficult to do. You haven't personally been to any hydrothermal vents, have you? Is it very hard to get close to them in any submersible craft? Or, you know, do you pay certain scientists that go down there to bring back stuff for you? Or do you have to piggyback on their research? Or what do you do? Yeah, it's hard. Some people are able to go there. Uh, so there, a pioneer is Deborah Kelly. Uh, there are people that go there with submarines, but they are very deep and they are far in the ocean. So I myself, I've never been. I would love to, uh, but we we I was rely say, on. It's like yeah. that'd be like the ultimate uh, birthday present for you, right? The trip there. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We rely on data that they bring us, of course, and with that data, we can start to build better models of of what can happen there. But yes, I've never been in. Yeah, it's it's very different to study a hydrothermal vent than than a geothermal pool, let's say, because those are much easier to access. Yeah, actually, I, I recently went to Yellowstone with my family and stuff, and they have you know, these all kinds of like geothermal pools, and it's really cool. There's all different colors, and you can see the microbial mats and and all kinds of stuff there. Yeah. So in general, like what you know, you've been on this journey for a while. What are some of the really mind bending things you've learned, or really? odd or interesting things you learned about your area of study? Well, I think I've realized deeply how complex even the simplest cells are. So I'm always focused on the cell, the cell, and some other people, there are many different scientists studying the origin of life, physicists, chemists, geologists. So I'm a bioengineer and I have been told, oh, if you focus on the cell, to study the origin of life, it's like uh, focusing on the works of Shakespeare to study the origin of language. <laughs> and uh, I think that person is somewhat right. You know, the cell is very, very complex, but the simplest life forms we know are those. And, and so that's what we have to deal with. So I've been facing this complexity more and more, like what a cell is inside. We usually learn in school that is kind of like a sack of water with just some dots and a rope in the middle, and that's really not it. So someone good to follow with regards to what a cell is visually is David Goodsell. He does these amazing drawings, like to scale of all the proteins and the crowded environment of a cell. What I've learned in my work that was very interesting to me was uh, the essential role of cofactors that also known as vitamins to us in establishing these, these chemical networks. They have a very vital role. And this has come from different works that I've done. Yeah, I'm starting to realize that these vitamins had to be present very early, probably, for the complexity of a metabolic network to arise. And another thing that's not science, but I've learned in the last years is 
how heated the field is. I really was not aware of that. And I guess that's because it's such a fundamental question that touches on even religious beliefs and, and so on. And, and so it generates a lot of heat and some people take things very personal. So I'm trying to advocate for people to focus on ideas instead of who put them forward, because that makes the debates much easier usually. Well, what cells are more amenable to your study and to your inquiries versus others? Like what's your ideal archetypal cell that you look at? Uh, it's prokaryotes. So there are two types of cells that we know of, prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Prokaryotes are bacteria and archaea, less known, but archaea are similar to bacteria. And so these are the simplest cells known, prokaryotes, and they have a linear chain of DNA and uh, are much simpler than an eukaryotic cell. The eukaryotic cell is what makes us humans, plants, fungi, and has a nucleus, and it's way larger. So prokaryotes are much simpler. And I've, I've studied, uh, I've done studies comparing as many prokaryotes as I could gather. So I'm a computational biologist and I deal with large data. So I've done studies with thousands of these prokaryotic species. But recently, I've also been focusing on some particular species of prokaryotes that do a simpler metabolism, specifically the Woodlung-Dahl pathway that I've learned with uh, working with Bill Martin in particular, that is a very special metabolic pathway because it's linear, it's simple. And so I've been focusing on species that use this pathway, both for carbon metabolism and energy, acetogens and methanogens. Okay, so the simplest prokaryotes you look at, like what's typically inside their membranes? You know, what kind of features versus, let's say, a human cell? What do they have and not have? They have a much smaller genome. Uh, they don't have a nucleus, so they don't have that nuclear membrane that is famous in eukaryotic cells. They they have what else do they have? Um, well, they're, they're, most actually is very very similar because eukaryotes arose from prokaryotes. Prokaryotes also don't have mitochondria, for instance, because the mitochondria in eukaryotes came from a prokaryote. Yeah, they are much much smaller. Like when you compare one to the other, it's order of magnitude smaller. But still, the chemical complexity is uh, on the same level, even if not more complex, uh, because prokaryotes can do a variety of more different chemistry than eukaryotes can. What are some of the big differences in their abilities in general? The carbon pathways, for instance, uh, bacteria can assimilate carbon with uh, very different and strange pathways. And usually eukaryotes just use uh, glycolysis and the Krebs cycle, you know, the things we learn in school. But bacteria can do weird things. Uh, they can uh, survive on extremely strange environments and eat all kinds of different things and just break them down and continue to grow. Also energetically, they can do different things than, than eukaryotic cells. In a way, eukaryotic cells just took the best and went for it, you know, and continue to evolve with that best pathway. And so, yeah, I guess the diversity of different pathways in bacteria allow them to, to kind of dominate being unseen. And then eukaryotes taking the best pathway to grow more efficient and they can just evolve to being more complex and different. Well, what kind of... Creatures are most amenable, like slime molds, are they prokaryotes or 
you know, fungi, I know it's another kingdom, but what about mycelium? Are they easy to study? Like, what's your model organisms that you look at? Yeah, I try to. So the model organism, the model prokaryote is E. coli. That's the one everyone takes. But I try to look at as many different species of prokaryotes as I can, even though I focus on those that do not use oxygen, also known as anaerobes. Uh, because at the time of the origin of life, there was no oxygen on Earth. As you may know, oxygen just emerged later with photosynthesis. So I focus on anaerobic prokaryotes, but I, I just look at as many as I can through comparative genomics and comparative metabolomics. But yeah, slime molds are not uh, prokaryotes. They are eukaryotes. So th those are outside of my scope. But if you want a good model of prokaryotes, you probably would take the model of E. coli. That's the most studied. Okay. Is that what you're studying or you're doing more like meta-analysis of people working with E. coli? Yeah, I do meta. I, I take large amounts of data that were collected from different sources. You know, I take databases of metabolism that were collected and assembled throughout the years and databases of many, many genomes and compare them. So, yeah, I'm mostly doing analysis other than going and collecting the data myself which, yeah, it's a bit unfair. But uh, yeah, I'm always on the lookout for new experimental data, new organisms, new genomes, and to just take them into, into my analysis. But I don't work with just one. I mean, one recent study we did, we focus on two specific prokaryotes, one acetogen and one methanogen, uh, one bacteria and one archaea, to find what was common in between them that was most likely in the last universal common ancestor chemically. But yeah, that was the only study that I really focused just on two prokaryotes. I usually take thousands at the same time. Well, what are you looking for? Like group behavior or what kind of, you know, like exchange of metabolites or you know, what kinds of things do you look for to tell you uh, what might have happened, you know, millions of years ago? Yeah, we're, we're looking at, well, I'm really interested in what is core, common, essential to all of them, which is funny because it's not that much when you look at it. So yeah, that's why I, I compare as much as I can. But you can also build phylogenetic trees for these species and, and look at how uh, their relations came to be today uh, from the tree and try to infer the root of the tree that is also known as the last universal common ancestor or Luca. So th this is what you... Well, do, do you... Do you think there's a LUCA or do you think there's multiple concurrent paths that, uh, you know, that started life? That's a very good question. It's most parsimonious, meaning it's most likely that there was a LUCA, just because of the amount of things that we all share and the genetic code that is universal, but also a lot of chemistry that we share. I mean, even the vitamins that I was talking about before, they are common in bacteria. They are uni universally, essentially, and common. So why not an alternative view that, you know, all of life has a, uh, a similar playbook and there's, you know, there's X number of things that can be chosen from the playbook at a certain stage. So why couldn't life, you know, why would life have only arisen once? Yeah, ever? that's, you know, why not yeah. multiple times? You know, you know why I say this? Because like, like I watched a video recently on this guy that photographs mushrooms, you know? And I saw that some of the mushrooms literally look like animals. Like one looked like a turkey. They even named them turkey tail and other stuff. And I see these repeated forms across different kingdoms, different time scales, et cetera. And so I see life 
don't know, like recreating the same structures over and over and over, even life versus non-life, you know, lightning and the mm-hmm. branches of a tree versus my lungs or my blood vessels. So I just wonder if there's, uh, you know, if there wasn't one event that started life, but it was started multiple times, you know, in various spots, maybe at similar time periods or almost same time period, but I don't know. It once seems weird to me. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. Yeah, it's non-intuitive and it's a very good question. I mean, you're talking about convergent evolution, but what you must remember is that that happens. The convergent evolution happens. And I mean, the I, just the I has arisen multiple times through different paths in evolution. But that happens because the cells already have the mechanisms to make new things appear, to evolve. So the origin of the first cell is such a complex event. I mean, it's such a, we have no idea how that could happen. So a lot of people say it was an accident. And therefore, yeah, it just happened once. And it was such an unlikely accident that all those molecules got together in that same place where they should be and associated as they should be. It's a very, very complex event. And that's why we we think that because we all share this in common and it's so complex, it probably happened once. But I, I begin to think as well that if we think of universal, of the universe, the origin of life in the universe, it may be likely that this is just the way it is, as you're saying, if it happens elsewhere or other times it will happen the same way. It may even be that it happened on Earth um, more than once, but it's just such a complex process. Yeah, whether it happened once or multiple times, but all at a, maybe a similar time period. I mean, well, I guess, you know, so far in a lab, no one's been able to create anything even re- resembling remoting life from non-life. I guess all life has come from life, not from non-life. You know, there's no like, yeah. no one has <laughs> observed life coming from non-life. And yeah, so, that was uh, Pastor's you know, big leap. Yeah. What's your like? What is your intuition telling you as you research this stuff? You just—I know you're—I know you're unsure. No one knows, but what's your gut feeling say? I—I I really wish I, I would know. You know, that's like what drives me out of bed every day is to know exactly the, the answer to that question. Like, if if it happened multiple times, and what I'm talking about multiple times is multiple different locations. You know, not to, because when it happened, the origin of the first cells, we are talking about a complex environment with multiple protocells for sure. It's not just one, right? So it's a, probably a population of protocells that then became a cell alive. But if it happened in different locations, if it could have happened, that means there is necessity at the origin. I tend to, I'm inclined to believe there is necessity at the origin just because there's such complexity in cells, so there must be necessity. So there must be laws or things that we still don't understand, but that cause life to emerge. So that's really interesting. And we need to look to those because understanding those laws, those things that push for life to, to come forward will help us understand biology at a much larger scale and even biotechnology and so on. So this necessity is very interesting. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting. Um, if do we have a map of a whole bunch of hydrothermal vents, and then could we back calculate, you know, looking at plate tectonics, what where the hydro vent, the hydrothermal vents were, you know, a billion years ago, two billion, three billion years ago, and maybe it would uh, that would tell us something. Yeah, that's very very hard, just because the Earth is so dynamic and plate tectonics, you know. 
I mean, people don't even agree if at the time of the origins, which we estimate around 4 billion years ago, they don't even agree if the earth was fully covered by water or not. I mean, I tend to believe uh, the geologists that say it was fully covered and the oceans were way, way deeper, but I'm not a geologist. But what geologists tell, tell us is that it's really hard to map what earth was like like 4 billion years ago. We know some things like there was a reducing atmosphere. It was way hotter. There was no ozone layer, no oxygen. But really mapping the floors and the continents 4 billion years ago, I think it's virtually impossible. But I would love that geologists could do that. That would be amazing. Well, what if you were to look at stromatolites? I guess the, the earliest life is, what, 3.5 billion years ago. And I believe in Australia they found them. So maybe you should investigate those and look at their genomics and metabolism and everything, if you could, or infer it, and maybe that would tell you, you get a lot closer that way. Yeah, that has been done. Stromatolites are, were built by cyanobacteria, and cyanobacteria rose way after the origin of the first cells. But it's interesting, and of course, we learn a lot from studying them, but those cells were already quite complex. Uh, they were already doing photosynthesis, and uh, they could deal with oxygen, or they were some of the first that could deal with oxygen. So we're talking about, when you're talking about the origin, we're talking way before stromatolites. Well, I thought some of the oldest ones are like three and a half billion years years old. So wouldn't that get us like a lot closer? You've only got 500 million years versus like 4 billion years. Yeah, yeah. And we, we are kind of, that's a good point that you're raising because we are kind of, we know more or less about those. And that means that the origin of life was quite fast. So after the Earth's formation around 4.5 billion years ago, uh, not much later life arose and not much later we had fully capable cyanobacteria. So we, we are at that point of understanding that we had those complex cells quite fast. But how did uh, non-life or just a lifeless planet led to, to that complexity? It's still very hard because we do not have any fossils. I mean, there were some claims, but they are always uh, questioned. And so we have some indication that there was uh, methane produced. So that methanogens are really old, uh, methanogenic archaea, and that's in accordance with, um, with other studies, phylogenomic studies, including some of those I did. But, but yeah, there, there is no um, experimental evidence that we can gather as far as we know so far. Well, if we look at, again, the oldest genes and the oldest fossils, what do they show? Like, what are some of the, um, the genes that appear to be the oldest that's been observed? And what does that tell us? Does it tell us anything? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, it's also a hot debate because bacteria do this thing that is called lateral gene transfer. So they exchange genes. And so it's not as easy to reconstruct the tree and say, what's the oldest gene? as we do with eukaryotes, because eukaryotes just transmit mostly vertically. And so because bacteria do this exchanging, they really shuffle up the tree and the tree becomes like a network. So it's very hard to go down the network and say where the root is, so which is the oldest gene. We do know that some genes have to be older, including the most essential functions like RNA 16S RNA, ribosomal proteins, and uh, but that's starting to be questioned as well. Like there, no one can really say this is the oldest gene uh, known. 
it's so far uh, an unanswered question. But if, you, if you're able to look at the genes of cyanobacteria, again, from like three and a half million years ago, and compare them to current day ones, I was sure you'd see differences, and therefore you might be able to infer, okay, these things are just not showing up in the old ones, and now they show up in the new ones. These ones yeah. showed up in both, so it's very yeah. likely that they're old. They may not be the oldest, but they're part of the family of old, old school. You know? Yeah, well, when you look at the set of genes that exist today, you, you have the set of genes that exist just in prokaryotes. That's all old, you know, that's all, or well, most of them are relatively old when compared to eukaryotes. But when talking really about stromatolites and cyanobacteria, when you go to those sites, you do not have intact DNA to study. You do not have the genes of those. You just have the fossil remains of what they did to the rock. So there is no DNA that we can look from 3.5 billion years ago. It's just rock and like evidence that life was there. What if we're able to establish which genes form which cellular structures that were preserved? Like if you have, um, you know, in the fossil record, I don't know if you're able to identify that, oh, okay, here's the membrane of this particular microbial mat. And we know that these genes are typically responsible to form a membrane like that. Therefore, you might be able to infer like, okay, well, these genes or some analog of them were present back then, even if you can't see the genes themselves, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You can infer that some genes were there. You can then try to infer which genes were before, but you always end up with, a, let's say, 100, 200, 300 genes. And that's a lot of complexity from going to, from a lifeless planet to 300 genes. You know, even if I can point you to, okay, these are 340 genes that I'm pretty sure they are really old. It only helps so much the origin of cells question because you have to find out how that DNA came to be together with the system that would allow it to replicate, meaning all the proteins and ribosome and membrane that allows it to replicate. So finding old genes is definitely very interesting and tells us about the environment of those early cells, but it only tells us so much about how the, those came to be from non-life. Yeah, I just wonder if it has to be like a game of golf. You know, can we at least get onto the putting green, you know, of, of when life began? I know we, you know we probably won't get to the origin, but can we get somewhere yeah. closer, at least within range? Yeah, we. so we have done that. So I, I was, uh, I'm being kind of bad to myself. So a recent study we did, we, we inferred the genomic content of the last bacterial common ancestor, Elbaca. And we inferred uh, a set of 140 genes that we really believe are at the origin of all bacteria. So those are supposedly really, really old. But again, as much as that tells us about the origin of bacteria, it doesn't tell us about the origin of cells and, and the, the first cells, how those genes came to be organized, because they need, again, a lot of machinery. It's kind of a self-referential process. It's like the question of the chicken and egg, you know? Okay, I have those genes, but I need proteins to reproduce them in a ribosome, which came first, you know? So we have to think a bit outside of the box when we think about the origin of cells, as per simplifying the complexity of what a cell is. What do these 140 genes tell you? These real old guys, you know, like, the, you know, when you look at them and you analyze them by computer and stuff like that, like, does it point to anything? Does anything jump out at you? Yeah, it was really interesting. They build a core network, a core metabolic network. This network was 
uh, nearly complete. Uh, it could build, it could produce uh, most of the essential metabolites for bacteria. It had a bunch of multifunctional enzymes, produced vitamins and amino acids and nucleobases. So it was a really interesting network. And we got to it just by comparing thousands of anaerobic bacteria and seeing what was uh, present in all groups. And, and then we, we looked at all the trees of all the genes. So yeah, there was this network that was core and quite complete. And, and so we really believe like 3.8 billion years ago, the complexity was already there. Most importantly, yeah, the multifunctional enzymes and uh, the fact that the cell was self-sufficient already, enough self-sufficient. But again, this is, we're talking about a lot of complexity already. So you'll have physicists saying, oh, that's not the origin of life. That's just uh, evolutionary biologist, biology because you're really dealing with Shakespeare when you should be dealing with the origin of the first letters. <laughs> right. But again, though, if you're a lot close, like, you know, okay. So if I'm like, ah, oh, that's BS, but you know, I'm looking at stuff today and you're looking at stuff that again, when this is in is within 500 million years of the origin of life, you know, well, it's not so easy for me to discount what you're saying because you're a lot closer than I am. So sure. I could pass it off as like evolutionary biology, but then you can fire back and say, Hey, I'm a lot closer time-wise than you are. So what I'm seeing is probably going to give me more clues than you just saying, well, you know, so I wouldn't necessarily like just let that stuff be discounted because again, if you're closer in time, even though it's still far away, you'll, you've got to see something. It's like looking at the big bang, you know, no one can get within, I don't know how many millions of years of it, but we're much closer than 14 billion years after. So you're in the yeah, neighborhood. No. There's got to be something happening that you can see. Absolutely. Yeah. We, so there's usually two approaches in the origin of life top down. That's what I've been telling you about with the albaca study going from all existing prokaryotes and going down, down, down to find what's core, what's common, what's LUCA or albaca. And then you have bottom up, which is people in the lab, usually chemists and trying to put things together and see, do I get RNA? Do I get lipids? So in between you have this big black hole of yeah, how, how do you get to the minimum complexity of a cell possible from those building blocks? And that's where we're digging right now, trying to, to bridge these two worlds, so to speak. And even I'm, I'm, I've been more on the top down, I'm, I'm trying to build models of semi-complex networks in the between where you say, okay, if I add all these chemicals and I see what they produce, do I at least get what's necessary to build a cell? But we need to start thinking also structurally. So how do these physical structures get together in a 3D way? You know what I mean? I think that's part of the future in the field. Well, very good. Joanna, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Uh, well, they can follow me on Twitter. And that would be at GRCXavier. There's also my website, jcxavier.org. Yeah, and uh, I'm around on Google Scholar and so on. Okay, very good. Well, Joanna, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. It was a pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.